morning, everybody. It's good to see you. The 1045, here we are. We're all acclimated and adjusted now and uh, so fun. Uh, if we've never met, my name's Jay and I'm a part of the team. So glad you're here. Um, if you're just kind of joining us for the first time or you've been gone for a little bit, let me just very quickly get you caught up for the last month or so. We've been in a series that we've called The Life We Want. And I know the title of that series, you know, it sounds like it's health and wealth gospel or something. Like, follow Jesus and you'll get the big house and the beautiful spouse or whatever. That's not what the series has been about. It's actually um, been an invitation to consider the possibility that the life we want may actually not even really be the life we think we want. That instead, the life God invites us to is ultimately uh, the life of discipleship. And that our church exists primarily to be and to make disciples. Men and women and children who are being formed into Christ-likeness. And that Christ-likeness, living a life that is like Jesus, is ultimately in short, I mean it's a lot of things, but in short, it's a life of love. It's a life that lives open to receiving the love God has for us and then returning that love back to God, to our neighbors, and to one another. And these are the values, the pillars upon which our church community is built. So that's what we've been doing for the last month. And today we're going to sort of, we're going to conclude and land the plane on this series. But to do that, I want to ask a different question. You know, for the last month, We've essentially been responding to the question, okay, what and how? Like, what is the life we want and how do we experience it, right? Today, as we land the plane, I want to ask the question, where? Like, where? Where do I experience the life we want? And to begin, I want to show you a photo of a young man with the most intense eyes you've ever seen in your life. This is a young man named Joseph DeVoyster. And Joseph de Voyster was born in rural Belgium in the year 1840. And uh, when he was a teenager, Joseph felt a very strong, distinct calling on his life toward pastoral ministry. And so, long story short, Joseph de Voyster becomes a Christian missionary and he moves to Hawaii, right? Nice, this, a nice calling, right? He moves to Hawaii. But it wasn't the Hawaii you and I think of today at the time. This is the 19th century. And Hawaii, the, the Hawaiian Islands had lots of issues. One of the key issues was leprosy. This is a disease that we're familiar with because we read about it in the Bible. In modern sort of medicine, it's called Hansen's disease. Now, there is a, there is a cure for leprosy today. But at the time, in the, the mid to late 19th century, there was still no cure. And there were a lot of people suffering from leprosy in Hawaii. Now, because the Hawaiian government at the time didn't know what to do, they took everybody who suffered from leprosy and they would deport them and exile them to a small island called Molokai. And so Joseph DeVoyster, when he gets to Hawaii as a Christian missionary, he hears about this, his heart is broken, he's moved to compassion, and he volunteers as a young man he says, listen, we're just shipping, export, exiling all of these people who were suffering to this island. I will go. I'll go serve them and pastor them and love them and care for them. So Joseph de Voyster takes on a, uh, a religious name. And the religious name he takes is the name Damien. And Damien moves 
to Molokai, and he spends the last 16 years of his life pastoring and serving the, um, the, the people, the men and women and children suffering from leprosy on the island of Molokai. He teaches them the Bible. He preaches the gospel. He prays for them. He helps build houses and roads and schools. He establishes churches and hospitals. He cares for them physically, emotionally, spiritually. He digs graves. He holds and presides over countless funeral services. And then in the year um, 1884, Damien, finally, after many years of serving the lepers on Molokai, in 1884, Damien himself becomes a leper. He um, contracts the leprosy disease. And at this time, though there was still not a cure, there were some medicines that would alleviate the pain. But in order to receive that medication, um, Damien would have to leave Molokai. And so the Hawaiian government and other people came to him and said, hey, you've done your duty. You've cared for these people well. Let's spend the remaining years of your life in comfort. Why don't you move back home and we'll take care of you. Damien refuses. He never leaves Molokai. And he dies. I'll show you a photo of Damien on his deathbed. He dies on Molokai. And until he had his last ounce of energy and breath, he gives every bit of strength he has to serving and to pastoring, to loving and caring for the men and women and children suffering from leprosy on Molokai. Some of you know this story. I could tell by the looks on your faces. You know this story as the story of Father Damien of Molokai. Because that's how we know Joseph de Voister today. We call him Father Damien of Molokai. When I ask a question, what compels a person to go when no one else would go? Like what was happening in Joseph de Voister's heart and mind? That when he realized the lepers were being sent to Molokai, when no one else would go, this young man says, I'll go. I'll go where no one else is going. I will, I, when everyone's running from the pain, I will step into the pain. And better yet, what compels a person to stay when everyone else would leave? When everyone around him said, Father Damien, you got, let's get out of here. You've spent a lot of your life giving and sacrificing for these people. You've done your part. Let's, let's spend the remainder of your years in some comfort. And he says, no, these are my people. This is my home. I'm going to stay. What compels a person to stay when everyone else would leave? The writer Daniel Grothy in a fantastic book called The Power of Place, he says this. The Christian life is practiced in particular places with particular people. Saints are always made somewhere. Saints are always made somewhere. This is why we know some of the saints of our faith as people like Damien of Molokai. It's why you know St. Teresa as Teresa of Avila or St. Francis as Francis of Assisi, or St. Augustine as Augustine of Hippo. You ever notice that? 
All of the saints of Christian church history, they belong to a place. There's this interesting phenomenon that has taken hold in the 20th and 21st century in the modern Western world, in our affluence and in our ability to travel with technology and all the rest. There's this phenomenon called wanderlust. And you're all looking at me like you don't know what that is. You know exactly what that is, right? <laughs> I suffer from wanderlust sometimes. Let me show you a photo. Um, I never do this, but let me show you a photo of myself. It's kind of, kind of vain. But it's not like me and my face. This is a photo that my wife took of me 13 years ago during our honeymoon. This was in Rome. That's me, kind of that shadowy figure down the street a little bit. That's me walking the ancient streets of Rome. And my wife took this photo. And um, it's one of my favorite photos. Because when I look at it, one, it brings back fond memories of our honeymoon and all of that. But also, it just makes me, I can like, I can feel the weather and I can smell the smells. You know what I mean? Like all the nostalgia comes run, run, rushing back. Like, oh, Rome. Like so amazing. And whenever I see this photo, I don't look at it often. But when I see it, I just, I am overwhelmed with wanderlust. It's like, man, I got to get back there. Listen, there's nothing wrong with traveling. There's nothing wrong with wanting to see more of the world. This is a beautiful thing. I mean, if, you know, Jenny and I have two young kids, so travel is a little bit limited right now. But if we could, we would. Like, we would, I remember we loved traveling before the kiddos, and, and we're starting to venture off a little bit. We did, like, a six-hour flight this summer with them. They were great. So now we're, like, contemplating, can we do a transatlantic type thing, you know? So we're going we're gonna to try to get back out there and continue seeing more of the world. Nothing wrong with traveling to see the world. But there is a danger in wanderlust. And the danger is that if we get so enamored with what is out there, we expose ourselves, we make ourselves vulnerable and susceptible to the possibility that out there is always so much better than right here. We begin to believe that the grass is actually greener. When in fact, the reality is God has called us right here. There was a survey done recently, this past year, just a few months ago, a nationwide survey of Americans and how they feel about travel. This is, none of this is really going to surprise you. But in this survey, they found that 97%, so basically everybody, 97% of Americans say that if they have a trip planned, they feel happier. Not just during the trip, but like having a trip on the calendar, 97% of Americans say it makes me feel happier. 96% say that traveling brings them peace of mind. 74% say that planning a trip, just planning the trip, helps them feel more in control amidst uncertainty. 71% say that they have greater levels of energy if they have a trip planned in the next six months. 60% of millennials, so right now between the ages of like 26 and 41. Isn't that crazy that you're four, you could, millennials are 41 now, millennials drive minivans now, you guys. It's like so crazy. <laughs> Everyone's like, we got to reach the millennials. What are you talking about? They have like seven kids. Millennials are old. 60% of millennials 
look to Instagram as their primary mode of travel inspiration. Okay, this is, this is, this is like a gut punch right here. Okay, everyone ready? Everyone ready? 40% of millennials prioritize Instagrammability when choosing travel destinations. In other words, how will this destination look on Instagram? Okay, stop. You're all judging the millennials right now. Everyone's like, oh. Yeah, I've seen your Instagram feeds. Stop it. Everybody does it. Everyone's like, is this the right angle? Is this the right angle, right? Okay, now, travel is not bad. It's a wonderful gift, that, especially for us today that we live, for the, for the most part, most of us live with enough at least maybe margin, you know, to, to be able to see uh, the world. And that what a wonderful gift. It is an amazing world. And we should try to see as much of it as we can. But again, the danger of wanderlust is that if we become fixated on where can I go next, we become susceptible to the possibility that we will live rootless, placeless lives. That at the end of your life, no one will say about you, J of anything. Because you never built and grew roots in a particular place with a particular people to partner with God for the good of that place and for the good of those people. And sure, your Instagram feed will look beautiful, but is that the sort of life you really want? A wonderful social media feed, but no place, no people that would say, man, they made a difference here. Even when right here is challenging, if you look at the scriptures, what seems pretty clear is that even when right here is challenging, God always seems to call his people to be a particular people in a particular place for the good of that place. Let me show you an example. Um, there's this ancient book in uh, the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, called Jeremiah. Now, if you've ever read Jeremiah, what you know is that it's a total downer of a book. It's really depressing. He's called the weeping prophet, and there's good reason for that. But there are these beautiful sort of glimmers of profound hope throughout the book of Jeremiah. Now, before I read the text to you, um, let me give you a little bit of background. Jeremiah was a prophet who lived and served about 600 years before the birth of Jesus. At that time, God's people, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, they had been displaced from their homeland and were living as slaves in exile under the authority of a pagan empire called Babylon. So they've been exiled. They've been displaced from their homeland. Now, that's kind of a bummer as we hear it, but for, for God's people, that is a big, giant deal. For God's people, for the, for the Jewish people, to be displaced from their homeland, was it? it didn't just mean they had to move. For them, it was symbolic of separation from God's blessing and his will over their lives. To be on their homeland, to reside in their homeland for the Jewish people to this very day is symbolic of God's blessing and his connection to them as his people. So to be displaced was not just a physical relocation, it was a sort of separation from God's presence amongst them as his people. And so this was a big deal at the time of Jeremiah. And because it was, they were so distraught living in exile in Babylon, Jeremiah hears word that the Jewish people 
are living as if they're going to get out of Babylon any minute now. Like they're not unpacking their boxes, so to speak. They're essentially telling one another, okay, this is super temporary. Don't worry. God's going to get us out of here. Maybe next Thursday, maybe a month from now, but we're not going to be here long. That's what's happening with the Jewish people at the time of Jeremiah. And then Jeremiah says this, chapter 29, verses 4 to 7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, I love this line, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is not what God's people would have expected. Remember, they are living in exile. They are slaves to a pagan empire. And so the expectation, if I were them, I would have done the same thing. Hey, honey, don't unpack the bags. We're not going to be here that long. We, we absolutely, of course, we do not belong here. God's going to get us out of here soon. We'll be all right. Just hold steady. And God says through Jeremiah, he doesn't deny that they're in exile. You notice that? It's not like God has rose-colored glasses. God doesn't say, hey, tell the people of Israel, actually, Babylon's not that bad, you guys. It's kind of nice. Good views, good food, weather's pretty decent. That's not what God says. He says, in your exile, yes, you are exiled. Yes, this is not your home. This is not the way things ought to be. But while you are in exile, God says, build houses, plant gardens, marry have children, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. That's what God says. This is essentially God saying, right here, wherever right here is, that's where I have called you. And as you follow me, as an expression of loving me, seek the peace and prosperity of that place. Jeremiah 29, 7. Again, let me just read it for you again. Because with that backdrop in mind, I want you to hear these words. Because it's so wild, God would say this. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it, the city in which you are exiled, the pagan empire, if it prospers, you too will prosper. Even in exile, God's people are called to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And the reality is, for many of us, you and I, the Silicon Valley, in our current cultural moment, feels like exile. It feels like we don't belong here, and I want to get out as quickly as I can. Um, my, my dear friend, Mark Russell, who is on our elder board, he loves to encourage me. So a couple months ago, he sent me this news article with a survey about pessimism in the Bay Area. <laughs> it's like, happy Monday, man. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> and uh, they, did this, they, they did this Bay Area-wide survey, 
and they found that basically two out of three Bay Area residents are extremely pessimistic about the future of the Bay Area. What's really interesting is this is a complete reversal from eight years ago in 2014 when they did the same survey and two out of three residents in the Bay Area were extremely optimistic about the future of the Bay Area. Um, of the Bay Area residents who have not already moved out of here, and you all know many have moved out of here, um, of the ones who have not yet moved, of the ones who are still here, 48% say that they intend to leave in the coming years. Listen, I get it. I understand. I want to make one thing clear, because some of you are getting nervous, right? Because you're like, but we're building that house in Texas right now. Is Jay going to say we're sinners if we move? I've been on Zillow, Boise, Idaho, three acres, 200K, got a lot of equity in my house. This is kind of weird. It's, you know, like no guilt. There's no guilt. This is not about whether or not you should live here or move. That's not what this is about. You've got to be where God calls you. And God calls in all sorts of ways. It is very rarely an angel visiting you in a dream. Although that might happen, that's very rare. Typically, it's like situational, circumstances, people you trust speaking into your life, family, friends, your heart being pulled in a particular direction. And over time, as you prayerfully engage that process, God will eventually make clear to you where you should be. And that very well may not be here in the Silicon Valley. And if that ends up being true, God bless you. We bless you in going. You've got to go where God calls you to go. That's not what this is about. What this is about is that we live under the assumption that there are better places that aren't right here, right now. We do this all the time. I do it. I'll just admit it to you. I do it all the time. And what it does is it keeps us, again, from growing roots, from being all in for the peace and prosperity of the place that God has called us to right now. This is one of the reasons why we do Beautiful Day. And I'll put up the QR code here. I know Finney already mentioned it, but I just got to implore you, if you are available, if you are able, and I know some of you have got really young kids and there's like the age limit is five and up, so you can't, it's okay, just pray for us. But many of us are available and we are um, able. And if that is you and you haven't signed up to join us yet, here's my invitation. Instead of just sitting here in these semi-comfortable chairs, listening to me talk about seeking the peace and prosperity of the Silicon Valley, what if you picked up a paintbrush next Saturday and actually sought the peace and prosperity of our city in the name of Jesus? What if you picked up a hammer next Sunday and actually physically through your energy, your effort, your strength, your sacrifice, your sweat, your blood, your tears, you probably won't bleed, you probably won't cry, but you get what I'm saying. What if you sought the peace and prosperity of a local school that way next Sunday? This is what it means to be all in right here, right now. And who knows God, where God will take you in a month or a year or a decade? Who knows? Wherever he leads you, that's where you've got to go. But while we are here, can we seek the peace and prosperity of the Silicon Valley? 
You know, it's interesting, Finney and I and some of our team, we've been talking about this a lot in the last year or so. When I was growing up, um, amongst skeptics and an unbelieving world, there was a very common question when it came to Christianity. Skeptics would often ask, is Christianity true? Like, is it true? Are those stories true? Did Jesus really come back from the dead? People are still asking those questions, and they're very important questions to respond to. But what's really fascinating is I've sort of considered deeply the landscape of um, our country and the Western world, really, in the last 10 to 15 years or so. That question, is Christianity true, is no longer the primary question skeptics are asking. The primary question skeptics are asking is not, is Christianity true? The primary question is, is Christianity good? Is it good for our world? Or is it harmful? Is this something we need to eradicate, put in the rearview mirror, get rid of? What's really, really beautiful to me, and I can't speak for the global church or the national church, I can just speak for us in our little church family, in our little corner of the world. One of the things that I am so grateful for and really proud of in terms of being a part of this church family is that when skeptics ask that question, is Christianity good? Again, I can't answer that question on behalf of like the national church or the global church, but what I can say confidently is that, well, for me, I belong to a church family, a local church family, that believes Christianity is good for the world. That it's good for our city. It's good for our county. It's good for our neighborhoods, our schools, for those who are most struggling and suffering. I believe I belong to a family that believes the way of Jesus is good. And we don't just believe it with ideas. We try to embody it with action. Like, I'm so proud and grateful to be a part of a church family that does that. And that's, that's what Beautiful Day is. It's an opportunity for us to answer, to respond to a skeptical world. Is Christianity good? It's an opportunity for us not to argue on Twitter and say it's good, but to pick up some tools and embody that it is good. Amen? Now, Jeremiah 29, verse 5. Right, He says this exact thing. It's essentially an invitation to work for the good of this city to which they've been carried into exile. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens. Um, in First Peter, the writer says, uh, many of us know this verse, the writer says, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Often we read that verse and we think all that it means is to have intellectual answers to people's questions. It certainly means that for sure. But the late great Dallas Willard expounds and he says this, and I love this. He says this verse is not a call to beat unwilling people into intellectual submission, but to be the servant of those in need. Often indeed the servant of those who are in the grip of their own intellectual self-righteousness and pride, usually reinforced by their social surroundings. I'm going to invite um, the worship team, Les and the team, to come back up. And we're going to sing and respond here in a moment. But I want to invite you to something uh, as we sort of land the plane on this entire series. 
Listen, again, this is not about guilt. Maybe you are one of the 50% of Bay Area residents who was planning on moving out of here in the coming years. Right? This place feels like exile and you want out and you're building your house already in Nashville, Tennessee or whatever. Right? If that's you, fair enough. Fair enough. In fact, my, my friend Gustav is here from Austin, Texas. He lived here for many years, and he's visiting today. And he couldn't get enough, so he came back to the Silicon Valley <laughs> just for a day, just for a day. Right? If God calls you, you got to go. Fair enough. Or maybe you're planning on building roots here. Maybe, despite the challenges, you really feel called here, and, and who knows what will happen, but your sense right now is that Silicon Valley is going to be home for you for years, maybe decades to come. Maybe you're somewhere in between. You're not quite sure. Either way, however long God has you here, whether it is another week, another month, another year, another decade, or the rest of your life, for however long God has you here, here is my invitation to you, my personal invitation to you. For as long as you are here, can you embody an all-in, here-to-stay posture? If you are here another week, in fact, there were, I had some dear friends in the 9, 9 a.m. service who they're having a house built in Texas, and they're out of here next month. And they're embodying this. They're here for like three more weeks. But for those three weeks, they are living as if they are all in, here to stay. They're all signed up for beautiful day stuff. They're going to be serving next weekend. Whatever that looks like, and it's not just stuff through our church it's the way you interact with your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, the random stranger in line at Costco or the coffee shop, whatever it might be. For as long as you are here, can you be here with an all-in, here-to-stay posture? In other words, for as long as God has you here, would you partner with God to work for the peace and prosperity of our city? Would you partner with God to work for the peace and prosperity of your neighborhood, your school, your workplace, that team you belong to, the extracurricular activity, the social circles that you are in? Whatever it might be, can you live in such a way that you are all in, here to stay, for the good of the Silicon Valley? to work for the peace and prosperity of this place that some of us will call home forever, others of us call home for now, but today in this moment, this is home for all of us. And even if it feels like exile, can you work for the peace and prosperity of this broken place? Can you embody the prayer Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Silicon Valley as it is in heaven. In San Jose as it is in heaven. At Apple as it is in heaven. At Google as it is in heaven. At Moreland Middle School as it is in heaven. At Westgate Church as it is in heaven. In our homes, in our neighborhoods, on our streets as it is in heaven. Can you be that sort of person? I'm going to show you a, a painting here. It's a famous painting. It's the painting um, Vincent Van Gogh incredible artist, right? And he painted several really well-known uh, self-portraits. This arguably might be his most famous one. It's at the um, Orsay Museum in Paris. 
Now, um, Van Gogh, this, this painting, this self-portrait is sort of in the classic Van Gogh style, right? Where his hair looks like it's on fire and it, it's like, it's, it's surreal, you know? What's really interesting, those of you who know Van Gogh and his story a little bit, if you look at Van Gogh's really early works, which are not nearly as famous, but if you look at Van Gogh's early works, they, they look nothing like classic Van Gogh's. They just look kind of dull and, but like realistic. And the reason for this is because when Van Gogh first began stepping into art and trying out art, um, realism was the name of the game. It was actually before cameras rose to prominence. And so painting at that time was primarily a means of documentation. Artists would paint portraits and settings to document history. So everything just looked realistic. You know what I'm saying? And then as Van Gogh progresses as an artist, um, the camera rises to prominence. And the photo camera, it makes realism sort of obsolete. And other types of artistic movements began to gain real traction. Now again, if you know Van Gogh's story, what you know is that um, he suffered from debilitating mental health issues. And it would eventually take his life, really tragically. But in the year, by the year 1889, Van Gogh was, um, he was a patient in a psychiatric institution. And so he would spend most of his days staring out these metal bars from his uh, room in this psychiatric ward. But the beauty of it, the one redemptive part of it, was in the evenings, out his window, he had the most stunning view of the night sky. And one evening in June of the year 1889, mesmerized by this evening sky view he had outside his window, he goes into a little cellar and he paints that night, June 23, 1889, this painting, which to this day is probably one of the most famous paintings in the history of art. You all know it, yes? Starry Night. Now here's what's really interesting. After Van Gogh finished Starry Night, we have a letter from him. He wrote a personal letter to a friend describing Starry Night. You know what Van Gogh says to his friend? He says to him, I think I'm going to throw it away. It's just, it doesn't look like anything. It, it certainly doesn't look like the view out my window. I don't think anyone's going to care about it. I don't think anyone's going to buy it. He was totally down on this thing. And the reason is because even though he was a surrealist painter, he had been so steeped in realism, painting essentially documenting what you could already see, that in his own mind, even in his own brilliance, he couldn't conceptualize the incredible genius of his own work. Now, you guys know um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? He's a scientist, he's an astronomer, kind of like pop astronomy, you know? Um, he's got, he's a scientist. He's not like an artist. He's a scientist. You know how he describes Starry Night? He says this, if this was an exact depiction of reality, it would be a photograph and I don't need the artist. You know what I like about the Starry Night? It's not what Van Gogh saw that night. It's what he felt. Where the world sees exile could you paint a vision of home? Where the world sees hopelessness, 
could you paint a vision of hope where the world longs for out there could you pick up a paintbrush literally next weekend and figuratively in the days to come and paint a vision of heaven on earth right here right here that's what it means to be all in here to stay that's what it means to have a place and to build roots when everyone else wants to leave. And for as long as God has you here, again, no guilt if you're leaving, but as long as God has you here, a week, a month, a year, a decade, a lifetime, for every moment you call this place home, can you and I together as a church family work for the peace and prosperity of this place? That God's kingdom would come and his will would be done in Silicon Valley as it is in heaven. Let's stand and sing together.